So I ended up with about a thousand total pages of writing, out of which one third of that was my first book. So I have about like 600 something pages floating around, like that were like not, that were like completely wrong directions, missed starts, too early, too late, wrong point of view. Welcome to Quarry's Qualms and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to date of publication. I'm your host, author Sarah Nicholas and literary agent Sarah M. Fisk. Heidi Heilig is the author of The Girl from Everywhere, a historical fantasy series involving piracy, time travel, and 19th century Hawaii, and For a Muse of Fire, a YA fantasy featuring a bipolar shadow player who can see the spirits of the dead. Heidi is bipolar herself, though when she travels through time, it is only in the usual forward direction. So please welcome Heidi to the show. Hello. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your experience with everyone. We're going to talk about your journey to publication, and we're going to start by going back kind of to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing, and how long did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Oh, gosh. That was uh, like <laughs> jumping in the Wayback Machine. I actually, I, I feel like, like many writers, I've always kind of been interested in storytelling. And I, 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 there are lots of, you know, stories my mom has now about me, like, oh, you used to do this. You used to tell all kinds of stories. You used to tell tall tales about how it was everyone else, a ghost's fault, maybe when something went missing. I don't know. Um, but I really didn't know I wanted to be a writer for, for, Wow, till like pretty late in my artistic career. Uh, for a long time, like right when I graduated high school, I actually thought I wanted to be an actor. I went to NYU for acting and uh, theater, and then I ended up not loving that. Uh, I know so much of this podcast is about um, sort of rejections and failures. And wow, was that a lot of rejection and failure. <laughs> so we can talk about that more later. After that, I went to grad school for musical theater writing, because I realized that while I didn't love acting, I still love telling stories, uh, especially in a theatrical format. So I studied musical theater writing, songwriting, and stuff like that. And I did that for quite some time. Eventually, I ended up, because I, I don't write music, that's one of my biggest failings, I feel. <laughs> I have no real sense of like musical I don't know, ability, like tunefulness, um, but I have a strong sense of rhythm, which meant that I could not write musical theater by myself. So I always had collaborators, which I, I really felt like made my writing better. But then one day, my longtime collaborator was not around because he, he had to go on tour with the producers. Who, no one makes money in theater. So um, while he was like a composer and a writer, he was also doing like music directing and, you know, playing a, a guitar and a piano for, you know, touring shows. So he was off doing like the tour, the official tour of the producers. And I was sitting in New York, like, what am I going to do while he's gone? So I was like, you know what? I love reading books. I love reading YA specifically. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was totally in love with Ray Carson's uh, Girl of Fire and Thorns series. If you like, that's kind of like back back in the day when, when I started <laughs> like falling in love with writing, uh, uh, writing YA. And I was like, why don't I try my hand at writing a book? So I did. And, <laughs> and it took a really long time. Um, speaking of like routes that never sort of went anywhere, I always tell people that my 
document, I, I never really delete things. I just cut and paste them into like a saved document because it mm -hmm. makes me feel better about having wasted all this time and all these words. <laughs> so I ended up with about a thousand total pages of writing out of which one third of that was my first book. Wow. So I have about like 600 something pages floating around like that were like not, they were like completely wrong directions, missed starts, too early, too late, wrong point of view. But out of that dross came the smelted metal of <laughs> my first book. And that was The Girl From Everywhere. Nice. Can you tell me a little bit more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author, that you wanted to kind of pursue that as a career? So I had this, I had this uh, draft, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And I, I knew nothing about the publishing world. And I was like, well, I guess I've heard of this thing called Wattpad. So what I'll do is I'll just throw it up on Wattpad and then go do something else because I didn't I I was so used to like just like writing things for theater especially and then just like not really having them become anything theater is so ephemeral like you put it up on stage and then it's gone you can keep rewriting it but once the th like the theater moment the play is over and the cast you know goes home and the set is struck it's done and so I was used to kind of letting go of things and then moving on so I I was like, I'll just put it on Wattpad. And I mentioned this to my mom. And my mom was like, you should try to get an agent. My mom is much more <laughs> smarter than I am. And she was like, you should try to get an agent. You should try to get this published. And I was like, I don't know how. And she's like, you know, I know this great website called Query Shark. They'll teach Your you how to Your mom told you about Query yes, Shark? Yes. Yes. So my mom, she, she is amazing. She's really amazing. And she's a great writer herself. But she, uh, she told me about Query Shark. And so I read, I went on there and I read the rules, which I was like happy to do because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I was like, read all the archives. And so I read all the archives and then I wrote a query letter and sent it to Query Shark. And then it was like, she, she approved the query letter on the first try. And so I was like, okay, so now I have this query letter. So what do I do? I Googled around and I, this is like, I feel like such an, uh, a fool, like now knowing how this went, but I, I was like, how do you find an agent? So I went to Query Tracker, and like back then, you could kind of Google some agents by like I don't know if it's still the same or not, but you could Google like who is accepting queries who and who look is looking for like YA or like historical. So I looked for YA historical fantasy and who was accepting queries, and I just made you know printed off a list of like the first twenty agents that came up, and I sent a query letter. I think I sent three query letters every week mm. for like a few months. And I was like, if this doesn't happen in six months, I'm giving up and I'm doing something else. Cause I was, <laughs> I'm great at quitting. I'm really great at quitting. I'm great at like doing the next thing because I don't, I'm really actually terrible at consistency. And it's been very hard to learn it as a writer. And like, as someone who's trying to have a career and who only started having a career for the first time at about I guess when, I don't know when my book sold, 30, I was 30, 34. And before that, I really was just doing random artistic stuff all the time. But then now when you're locked into a contract, it becomes mm -hmm. a job and you have to be consistent. Mm -hmm. But before then I was like, well, I'll just give it six months, see if it goes anywhere. And I got, you know, some requests back. And I, so I sent the whole book off and lo and behold, I ended up with an agent and before I could, <laughs> before I could get frustrated and put it on Wattpad. Uh, and then the rest, the rest, the agent mostly did. So that was a big load off my mind. 
All right. I need to send your mom a thank you letter then. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely owe like everything to her. So Yeah. 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 Can you break down for us your journey from signing with an agent to signing your first book contract? How was that? As like a complete like noseman in the publishing area, like in the publishing world, I had no idea what to expect. And I was like frantically like searching, but there's, there wasn't a lot of information. I feel like there, there probably was, but I didn't know where to look. And maybe now it's a little bit more easy to find, but back in (laughs) almost 10 years, like almost a decade ago, 2014, I had no idea like what was you know, what, what to expect or what was going on. So for one, I was actually, I was actually like six months pregnant when I got like the call for, from Molly and I like, didn't tell her, I was like, no one can know because I was used to like, you know, making do with my like a corporate world job and like other Mm. odd jobs where like, they don't want to know this stuff or like, if you tell them that they might not work with you or what, I mean, they'll never say anything, Mm -hmm. but you still might get rejection. And especially the acting and theater world, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, forget about it. I didn't tell her that I was pregnant. And so mm-hmm. like, I was like, I was just like bopping along. And then when she, so we signed a contract in like December for Molly Kurhan to represent me. She's with the Bent Agency um, and she's amazing. Signed the contract in December, ended up doing a round of rewrites in February I gave it back to her and she wanted to take it to the Bologna Book Festival and um, and sort of shop it around there. I think that's like early spring, March or so, maybe April. I'm not sure, but around that time. So she, uh, she liked the rewrites. She took it out and uh, started showing it to a few people. And she has all, she has all these connections that I don't like, I don't understand. Like she's, she's, you know, she knows who to, who to send it to. She knows when you're sleeping, she knows when you're awake. Uh, <laughs> she, she like had, she had it all, all down. And I just kind of was, felt like I was along for the ride. I mean, she would call me with updates like, oh, so-and-so has it or likes it or doesn't, you know, or like is still working on it, hasn't had time. And then within, I feel like it was within a couple, like a week or two that we had, that it went to auction and then we had a bunch of offers and they all, they all were coming in. And then um, I ended up getting one from Martha at uh, Greenwillow, who has been my editor ever since. And I really, really adore her. And it was just like a huge, to me, it felt like a stroke of luck, but I'm sure that there was a lot of work behind the scenes uh, on Molly's, you know, part and on Martha's part to, you know, make sure their relationship would fit. But, um, but to me, it felt like magic. And I got the call. <laughs> I got the call. And I, uh, I was actually uh, in preterm labor from a completely different stressful event. So I was actually in the hospital and my, my, <sighs> I, I, I was hooked up to a blood pressure monitor. And she was like, well, so just, you know, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't freak out or anything. And I was like, uh huh. And I was like watching my heart pressure like go up. And it was, I mean, it was great. It was like, and it, it, everything turned out fine with my child and with the book. So it, became like a really wonderful story, but it was definitely a whirlwind and like a, a crazy time. And that's like my strongest memory is like how just how crazy it was. I remember I was on bed rest afterwards and I was getting all these calls from her and she was just like, this is this is what's happening. And this is, you know, this is what not to worry about. And this is what you should be thinking about. And then I eventually told her when Martha agreed, I think we had like, I can't remember exactly when she was, she, she put me in touch with Martha and it was like in late, it was like in May or something. My son was due in June. And I was like, just so you know, 
I'm due in about a week. And and she was like, wow. And she actually got me the edit letter. I think went right when I came, like the week I came home with my son, uh, the first round of edit letters came in and it was just, uh, it was a lovely because it was, uh, an amazing time, like uh, upheaval and, and excitement. And, uh, I remember sitting with the baby on my lap and and looking at all these edits and like and just uh, it was just like I felt like I had stepped into a portal like a portal <laughs> fantasy but like of a really weird portal fantasy but it was a really cool one. That's really cool because I know like when you get an offer when you get that call from an agent, you can feel your heart rate spiking, you can feel your blood pressure going up, but you actually got to be able to like see <laughs> the yes. measurements. Yes. And, uh, and, they, and they, of course, when you're like on bed rest and in preterm labor, they're like, do not get yourself worked <laughs> up. You have to rest. You have to stay calm so you don't actually pop that baby out. And I was like, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. <laughs> it was like, it was really, really, uh, yeah, uh-huh. quite a time. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Can you read your successful query letter for us? I can. I have it here. All right. I always remember it, but I can always find it because I can always just search number 246 on Query Shark because that was the letter I remember now. It was number 246. <laughs> it goes, Dear Query Shark, normally you would substitute agent, right? Um, agent's name. Uh, when Nix's father locates a good map of Honolulu in 1868, she knows she's in trouble. It's not the trouble of time travel. Nix grew up sailing from map to map and era to era, nor is it her father's opium habit. She's only too used to dealing with that. No, Honolulu in 1868 poses a threat she's never faced, the threat of remaking her own past. Her father is undeterred. Honolulu in 1868 was when he last saw Nix's mother alive, and for a chance to see her again, he seems willing to sacrifice anything, or, Nix fears, anyone. In an effort to get his hands on the map, he leads Nix into a political intrigue involving sugar barons, opium dealers, and a plot against the last king of Hawaii. And Nix has to decide how much she will sacrifice to free her father and herself from the yoke of her own history. The Girl from Everywhere is a young adult historical fantasy completed, oh my God, 101,000 words. Thank you for your time and consideration. That was that was a lot of words. I did cut many. Uh, I think in the- <laughs> the several rounds of rewrites that I did. Nice. So how's your experience been since signing that first contract? What were some of the biggest kind of surprises along the way? Well, actually, one of the first surprises I'm reminded of now was actually in writing the query letter. Speaking of rewrites and just going the wrong route, I had to, when I was writing the query letter, I realized that my main character wasn't active enough. And now looking at this letter again, I'm like, oh yeah, well, all this stuff about the character, but then, you know, her father leads her into, and it's like, I remember looking at those sentences, I'm thinking like, she needs to be way more active. So even the active querying and just trying to distill the book down to get it when I thought it was ready to send out and writing what looked like a successful query letter, even then the book needed more tinkering and more work. And that's kind of the story of my time since uh, since signing uh, any contract is that the rewrites to me are where the magic always happens. I mentioned earlier that I, you know, I, I was always collaborating on theater. And that is like the great thing to me about theater is that it is so collaborative. Like you get your say, the director gets their say, your, your co-writers and your your actors and your designers and everyone puts their own stamp on it. And then of course, like the final 
addition to that is how the audience reacts and takes mm. in the show. And so everyone is, in a, in a sense, collaborating on one piece of art. And with writing, it is a lot like it's a lot lonelier. You end up writing this thing for like ages all by yourself and looking for sort of signs and importance and critique of like how you could be doing it better and not getting a lot of it. That was like, to me, the, the most wonderful thing about being on the journey to publication and signing with an editor was finding an editor who could tell me like, this is where, you know, a problem lies. This is or and one of the reasons I had a couple of offers of representation. And one of the reasons I picked Molly was that she had critique when I I asked her like is there anything that we needed to do to to get the book ready to to go out and she had some suggestions and I really really longed to hear that sort of feedback and to make the piece better and so when Martha gave me the edit letter I was like wow this is so great and so I started like to like spreadsheeting the edit letter or not spreadsheeting because I'm actually not that organized but I would take chunks out and like rewrite them in different areas and like put them around in places that made sense to me in the document and so that has been like the biggest thing and, and the most fun part of the journey is, is getting that criticism and being able to make those changes and really mine the piece, discover what is inside it and the, how deep it goes and all of the ways that the different storylines and, and themes and metaphors can tie together. Yeah, that is like the very best part about publishing to me. That's so great because I, I can't remember which episode it was, but recently an author had said that they went with an agent because it was the one agent that said it was ready to go out as it was. And then you have kind of the opposite reaction. So I just love that, like showing every writer is just a little bit different. Yeah. And I mean, I don't doubt that there are authors out there that work really well alone or like mostly alone. But I, yeah, for me, I definitely need that, uh, that feedback because I get lost. I completely don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, there's something wrong, but I don't know what it is. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. All right. It's just time for our quick round. I call it author DNA. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I'm a plotzer. I love this question because I'm always like, I'm a plotzer. I try really hard to uh, do uh, an outline and then I completely don't use the outline. I use like one or two moments and then tie them together. And I usually realize that the outline is like about the middle of the outline is where the book should actually start. <laughs> Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? I am a chronic underwriter. And I think this goes back to my theater days because when you're writing for theater, you don't have to describe the sets and you don't have to describe what the character really looks like because everyone else makes that decision, like casting and costumes and lighting and everything. You don't have to just worry about all that stuff. You just have to hit those emotional beats. And so I will hit all the emotional beats and kind of stage people really briefly or characters really briefly. Um, and then I have to go back through it and be like, okay, how would this actually look? And I have to do all that extra work. And I mm -hmm. uh, miss, I miss theater for that one reason. <laughs> yeah. People who wrote for TV and film first said the same thing. Okay. That's so cool. I love to see those similarities. Do you tend to write better in the morning or at nighttime? Oh, in the morning. I can't after about like six PM, I'm like kind of brain dead. Like I have to do dinner and I have to, it's like so hard. It's just too much. I'm like, I'm an old lady. I'm in bed by like nine o'clock, nine thirty. So yeah. When starting a new project, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? <sighs> I think it changes. I, with the first book I had, 
I had a sense of, uh, of, of like wanting to be on a time traveling ship. <laughs> I had actually gotten an offer to help um, my br now brother-in-law crew his ship across the Atlantic for the Atlantic crossing. He was going from like mm. somewhere in the Mediterranean to, um, to Bermuda to, to fix the ship. I couldn't go because I was trying to get pregnant at the time. And so I felt really jealous and upset. So I was like, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, so that was like definitely a concept piece, but other pieces, characters come to me first, um, or ideas. It's all over the place. Mm. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Oh, coffee. I, what is tea? It's like dirt water. I'm sorry. No offense to people who like tea. Like it's just it's like dirty water. I could get the same thing out of a tap if like in an old house. Sorry. <laughs> Whenever you're drafting, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I actually love, I, I need a lot of sound. I actually usually will have some music playing and then also some, also a little movie going on in the corner of the screen. And then the two conflicting sounds like cancel each other out. Mm -hmm. And then I can, uh, and then I can work on whatever, <laughs> whatever I'm actually working on. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? I'm trying, I'm trying to be a get it down person because I've realized over time that if I, if I let myself be a get it right person, I will never move on. And my first pages will be great. And then I will have nothing, nothing. And I think when you're doing deadlines, especially it, it's really just important, at least for me to just get something on the page and then I can fix it. What tools or software do you use to draft? I just use Google docs because I, um, I have a day job, which is reception. And if you are thinking about becoming a writer and you have an option of going into a reception job, this is, I highly recommend it because you can sit in front of a computer all day. And when the phones do not ring, then you can just open Google Docs, Google Drive and like work on your book and then it saves. And then you never have to worry about saving something or having a little thumb drive, which I used to do. What a horrible, <laughs> that was like such a mess. But that was like 20 years. I mean, that was like, so like, I love how technology has made it accessible, made my document accessible from whatever computer I I'm on. Yeah, my first book that came out, I wrote part of it. I wrote it in Google Docs because I was a nighttime security guard. And so I just like pulled out my phone and wrote a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Those, those, I mean, those jobs are like super boring and like kind of spooky sometimes, but like <laughs> it's like still, it's like they're so, they can really feed your creativity, like your creative side if you also need to like pay the bills. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising. Um, revising for sure. I was like, I was like, dra who would say drafting? <laughs> I, I like revising because I know like I, it, that all the hard to me, all the hard work is done and all the fun begins and you get to really discover what you were trying to say instead of like having to just like shit out something. I just like put something on the page and be like, it's placeholder. Like stuff happens here. Like, you know, something has to happen, but what? I don't know. And then when you revise, you learn. And it's fun. <laughs> do you write in sequential order? Do you hop around? Very rarely I will write a couple of scenes that I know are like climactic scenes or fun scenes or exciting scenes that like I the reason I'm writing this book is like to get to this scene and I will write it. But mostly I do sequential order and then I will just like again, like just write like stuff happens here or like they argue, but I don't know about what or like, you know, if, if I have to just move to the next scene and I don't know how to answer the sequential questions yet. Final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I like, I, that's another reason I miss. And I love, I just, I'm so excited to get, uh, you know, it, 
to get invited and to come and chat with you because I love talking to people and I love, oh, I miss like human beings and like mm -hmm. book events and oh God, like the magic of theater. We're all in a room and like just arguing about like what, who should be singing what. And like, <laughs> I just miss like, I miss the activity and the people of like, of, of artwork and, and so, yeah, like when book events happen, I'm always the person who is like in everyone's face. <laughs> the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. So now we're going to talk about the second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? Hmm. It's so funny because the worries, I definitely have a lot of, like, I'm definitely a worrier. I'm also lucky in that like I have a terror, like when I'm stressed out, I have a really bad memory. So I can forget a lot of the things that never came to pass. <laughs> so this is really nice. I think that one of my biggest fears, and this is still a fear that I have all the time, even though every, every year or two, I prove myself wrong. My biggest fear was that after having this idea, because the, my first book, the book I wrote like first and like that actually got picked up and everything. People used to, you know, they talk about the book of their heart or whatever. I don't know if people are still talking about that, but that was it for me. Like that was the book I wanted to write. That was like the one that I thought like dreamed up and like it came to me and it felt great when I was writing it. Like it felt great when I finished it. And like, I'm still really proud of it. I haven't reread it since, <laughs> but like I'm still really proud of it. And I think that after that, I was really afraid that I would never have another book that I loved. Like I would never write another story that was, that came together as well, or that was felt as magical or that had as great an idea. I think that it's kind of like now that I've written a few books, I'm like, oh, it's like, and now I have two children also. So it's like, it's like, oh, there's, they're children. They're like children. You love every one of them. They're all just different. It's not like one will never be as like, is good as the other. It's like, they're all good in different ways. <laughs> and some of them are absolute assholes, <laughs> but like you still love them and they're great. And you're happy that they're around, but they're just, they're all, they're all different. And that, that was what I was so worried about was that they would never be as good, but they are <sighs> yeah, just different. <laughs> uh, I did it once, but can I do it again? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And the final cue, do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? You know, I don't know if this is unique to me, but it's something my editor teases me about all the time, which is that when a deadline comes, I will send her like the final draft. And then if Monday comes around and I, I will sometimes email her and be like, you know, two days later, I'll email her and be like, have you actually opened that yet? Or can I give you the final, final draft? Like, and she's like, if she hasn't looked at it yet, it's like, I will just send her the newest draft. And it's like, by the way, I've changed the, the last third of the book. And it's, it's like, I'm on draft 19. <laughs> Most of the second half is different. Uh, it only took two days after like the other, you know, the previous two page change took like three months. But now it's really, really, actually really good. But I think that it's because as I rewrite and as I learn more and more about the books, more and more kind of falls into place. And I really get to like, you know, the more you hone your knowledge about something, the more connections you can make and the, and the, and the faster it all comes. It's kind of like that to me. It's like the, by the time I'm a, an expert on the book, I can actually make the big major changes that like, 
I probably should have made like a while ago, but <laughs> and they take way less time than they would have at the start. When you were in whatever the lowest part of your journey may have been, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? Oh, wow. That's like, mm-hmm. such, that's such a good question. And like something came to mind immediately. Like I was in the middle, I was re- trying to write the second book of the three book series. And I, and I will tell you like, this sounds terrible, but the only reason I could finish that book was because I had to, like I, I had signed a legal document and I was crying. I was like, can I get, I wrote to my agent. I was like, can I just give back the money mm-hmm. for all of the books? Can I just owe the money back to my agents and my, and my, and Harper Collins, because I can't think of what to do next. And it was a million reasons. Like, like I had just given birth to my second son and I was so tired all the time. Mm-hmm. And like, I think I had like postpartum weirdness. Like I, I never, like, I have a really hard time like being already being mental ill, mentally ill. <laughs> I like have a really hard time with like doctors. Like, I mean, growing up mentally ill through like the nineties when like things like mm-hmm. feels like it was the wild west back then. And like, I know things are better now, but it's like still very hard for me to like try to seek out help and diagnosis. And like, there was something going on and I can see that now, <laughs> but I don't, no, like I did not know how to solve that problem. And literally the only thing that kept me going was Molly saying like, if you really want to do that, you can, but that is like a lot of money. And I don't know if you have that in your, like, do you have it? <laughs> because and I think that you would be, I think you would really regret it. And I was like, and I had made a commitment and it's like, yes, I would regret not sticking to my commitments and like disappointing myself and like, like how, wh- who, what would people say about that? Like, wow, like author Heidi Heilig, like totally <laughs> fucked up so bad. <laughs> like I just, I couldn't bear that. So I had to do it. And it's funny because that was the story. That was the whole um, three book series about like a bipolar uh, necromancer who's like dealing with a lot of feelings. And like, it was, it was definitely uh, true to life. Not the necromancy part, but but there was a lot of stuff like <laughs> ripped from the headlines of my life that was, uh, you know, that was, it was good to, it was good to write it. Um, but I, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was hard. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you would like to share with listeners so maybe they can avoid making the same ones? <laughs> Aside from that. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Like, but this goes into so much of like how I've like my entire mistakes I've made of like my entire life. I feel like, I feel like I should have as a, like as a crazy person, as a crazy writer, I should have looked for help. I should have sought that out. But like, that is like great hindsight that I can say from the position I'm in now, which is not in the down cycle. But like, if I am speaking to anyone with a mental illness, who is also an artist, like, please, please please like try to get help if you think you might need it. Please reach out to people and let them support you or like talk to a doctor if you can. I know it's so hard and it's so expensive, but if you can and you need help, please try to get that help for yourself. I think for me personally, like on like a less universal note, I think for me personally, I I don't know that I would ever like sign a contract that would commit me to something three years from now again. Like, I think I would only want to do one contracts for one book at a time because I really like having 
the freedom of, I'm like, I, you know, I started this conversation by saying like, ah, oh, if, if something doesn't work out in six months, I'll just abandon it and do something mm-hmm. else. I'm like, that is how I always feel. Like I have a hard time committing to stuff and um, sticking with it. But at the same time, you know, maybe making those commitments, if you do have a hard time being committed and, and sticking to something, maybe forcing yourself to do it is actually a good thing. So uh, mistakes are hard. Like you, I don't, I'm not unhappy with where I am today. I'm like, I'm actually really happy. And all of those choices, good choices, bad choices, choices that made me miserable, (laughs) choices that made me thrilled, they all led to where I am today. So are they really mistakes? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kind of related. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication? One of the most important lessons I've learned. And, and one of the hardest things actually for me to do, kind of, I mean, it's, it's weird, right? It, especially with the pandemic. So the pandemic is, is what has made this weird and, and social media and like the interaction with my own like mood swings. But friends in the publishing industry and people you can trust are the most important people, I think, and the most important relationships you can save or cultivate or, um, rely on. Like I had a, one of the, one of the times I was really down, I tell this story a lot, but one of the times I was really down, several of the times I was really down actually. And I owe her every time I think about this, I'm like, I should text her and just say, what's up. But every single time I've been down, like in the dumps, almost every time uh, I've been able to reach out to Justina Ireland, who we don't talk all the time. You know, we, I, I don't know if we've talked in months, but she is always there if I need her. And I hope that I am always there for the people who need me, even though I'm like fucking flighty as hell and like hard to connect with sometimes when I'm, you know, depending on where I am in in my mental state. Like I want to be a person that can be relied on, especially if someone is having a hard time. And I cherish the people that I can rely on that understand like, like what, like what publishing is all about. Like, like when you say like, I hate my book, like what, you know, what do I do? And they like sit you down, like talk you through it. And they know the feeling of hating the book, but like needing to get it done. Like you, those people are so valuable. And even if you don't have all the same experiences, or even if you don't talk all the time, they're just so, they're so important uh, to me. And, and I, I think they should be important to you too. And, and you, not you, Sarah specifically, but any listener, uh, I think it's important to not only to have those people, but also to be that person for at least one other person. That leads perfectly into our last question. Uh, this is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people and organizations who helped you along the way? Uh, well, aside from Justina, who I I feel like I owe so much. And again, it's I, it's weird. I don't know if it's like super parasocial or whatever weirdness, but like she is just, she's like an amazing figure to me. Aside from her, my you know my agent Molly and my editor Martha, they have walked me through so much, and they have always been there for me. Like dumb questions, like hard questions, like silly questions, like all of those, anything I need, I can come to them and they will be honest with me and helpful to me. Even if it's not the answer that I want, it's always the answer that I need. Uh, and that's, I think those, again, those professional relationships are also super important. I like to credit the success of my first book to the rise of We Need Diverse Books. Mm. 
my books sold, I think like two or three months before We Need Diverse Books took off as like a hashtag. So I feel like the people who were pushing for inclusivity and books about and by people from sort of all different communities helped. It was already in the air, I think, at the time, because, you know, just because it coalesced a couple months later does not mean it wasn't Mm -hmm. a part of the milieu. And I really credit everyone who had been pushing so hard and all the authors of color and the, and the crazy authors and the queer authors that have, and writers and people in the community too, and readers who um, have been agitating for um, inclusiveness before and since. So those are, those are the first groups and people that come to mind. Nice. All right, Heidi, before you go, could you tell us about your second series? We already know about the first one from your query letter, but can you tell us about the second one? So my second series is, as I mentioned, about a bipolar necromancer who's also a shadow player. Um, She lives in a war-torn Asian style fantasy country. And the first book opens with her trying to escape while she has to hide her ability to see the souls of the dead. The cool thing uh, the thing that I loved most about that book is uh, is that she can actually see the souls of the dead and attach them to her shadow puppets. So she can kind of control and and use these these beings, and they bring their own sort of energy and spirit to um, the artwork. And it, uh, it, growing up in Hawaii, I had I realize now like my sort of religious influences were sort of pan-Asian and like also very local. Believing in the spirits of a place and the spirits of um, every living thing or every in, every object really has always been sort of a part of my belief system. And um, it was really fun to be able to write that uh, into a book as well as um, my own craziness. Like I had never written a bipolar main character before. Uh, and so that was really fun. And of course, like it wouldn't be a book by me if it weren't some like socio-political commentary about like mm-hmm. colonialism. So that's in there too. <laughs> um, and so, so we really kind of all came together and like, and created this like beautiful, like lush world um, that I really had a, a great time being in for three, three books, three years. So, and it's complete now, which is really nice if you don't like waiting for your next <laughs> series installments. So, yeah. It's been a while since I read the first book, but I remember there's a moment where I can't remember if it, now if it was a panic attack or if it was just like a kind of like a manic moment. I remember like feeling like it was the first time I had read that kind of authentically in a book and just feeling so seen and so not alone. Oh, that means so much to me. It was it was fun. It was fun writing. I would say fun, but it was it was really an experience writing a bipolar main character and putting so much of this like stuff that's kind of ugly in a way, Mm -hmm. but real on the page. Um, But it was also really like, it's really like tough. I remember when I was writing, there's this, there's a section where she becomes um, depressed after this like manic time of like, you know, a bomb going off in outside the theater and like her trying to escape, uh, you know, with her family. And all this other, all this like stuff that would throw anyone into upheaval, um, especially someone with mental illness. And there's this moment, you know, this part of the of the middle of the book where she gets depressed, and I was like, oh my god, like it is really hard to write depression mm-hmm. and like make it active and like move the plot forward at the same time. And my editor was actually someone, the one who came up with a really good idea of like interspersing it with uh, the 
the books are sort of shot through with ephemera letters and journal entries and, um, you know, missives from like telegrams and maps and all these other things, which I really also loved, but, um, uh, sheet music too. Uh, so I brought back mm -hmm. my collaborator, uh, <laughs> after he was done with his tour from the producers, you know, she, she was like, let's intersperse this and the chapters will get shorter and shorter and shorter mm. as she gets less and less. And it was like, it was like the perfect idea and it was the perfect way to put it on the page. Um, but somehow sometimes translating those emotions that you feel and the things that you're so familiar with, it's so hard to get it written on the page. And mm -hmm. yeah, and I was really proud of that. So thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Heidi, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with my listeners today. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation. It was so, so nice just catching up with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Heidi's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing the episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.